0: Welcome to the Inspiring Humans podcast. We are so happy to have you listening. My name is Stephanie Willard and this podcast is a platform to showcase the incredible human spirit. On this podcast, I'll be interviewing people from all over the world and all walks of life who will be sharing with us their personal dreams and their dreams for the future. I believe that through coming together and creating community, incredible things are possible. In fact, anything is possible. And I hope that this podcast is a launch pad for creating the new world that we want to see, that will have humanity free, thriving and living in their full self-expression. Welcome, Neville John, to the Inspiring Humans podcast. Uh, it's fantastic to have you here today. What an honour.
1: Well, thank you, Stephanie. It's equally an honour for me to share time with you um, as we have many times in the past. So thanks for having me on.
0: Uh, Neville, you've been both a mentor to me, kind of an informal mentor, but one of those people that have been an encourager and a supporter on... This incredible journey called life for all of us. But, you know, it's someone that I absolutely treasure and admire because you have a certain way of encouraging and supporting people and bringing out the best in people. So, when I thought of having you on the podcast, I was super excited to share your amazing kind of ways with other people and for this particular podcast I'd love to focus it around you know the the leadership and the collaborative approach that you've brought to uh, all the different things throughout your career and the things that I've witnessed you get off the ground which have been incredible but before I start diving into the questions I'd love to just throw to you to for you to explain a little bit about your career and what's brought you to what you're
1: currently working on? Uh, Thanks, Steph. Well, I had a very long career in the chartered accounting profession, which probably began uh, as a young boy, uh, uh, one of five children, to parents who uh, worked hard. Uh, My father was a tradesperson. And uh, I went to, grew up in the northern suburbs in Reservoir, went to Preston Technical School, where they taught a, combination of academic and trade subjects Um, I think my dad was having a bit each way there in case we weren't academically inclined but he always encouraged us to work hard at our studies and go as far as we could and that stuck with me plus the fact that every school holidays we got as I got into my teens my dad and his brother would uh, borrow us to help do some of their building work and uh, I must say, I didn't like it um, because we get all of the, the rubbish tasks. Um, and I thought, if this is what life as a builder is like, I don't want to be that, so I'm going to study hard. Um, so it, it led to um, what is now an RMIT campus. It was originally called Philip Institute of Technology out at Janefield near Bandura. And they uh, ran a business studies course and um so I thought I'll have a crack at uh, completing a degree, and so I did. And in the last year of that degree, um, we started thinking about where would I work, where would I try and get a job? And once again, my dad's uh, voice was, well, aim high, go for, the, go for the best game in town, a bit like using a football analogy, if you want to play football try out for the AFL and then see where you go. Um, so that happened to be in the accounting profession, the, uh, the Institute of Chartered Accountants. So I, I went for a job at a chartered accounting firm and was lucky enough to get um, that job. And um, a long story short, in that firm, uh, was about 26 people when I first started it. I spent my whole chartered accounting profession Uh, life there became a partner at the age of 29 managing partner at the age of 39 and then we sold out of the practice uh, at the age of 49 when we had a staff in Melbourne of two over 200 people Uh, and it was that profession Stephanie that uh, gave me so much and more I mean my parents gave me the start but it was um, working amongst. Giants, intellectual giants, that gave me the courage and the determination to try and um, uh, emulate their abilities. So that's a little bit of a thumbnail sketch of where I where I got to and what I did for almost thirty years of my working life. So um, then it went from once we sold out, I stuck around for two years, decided that. Um, I really wasn't that interested in uh, uh, putting in 60-plus-hour weeks uh, for other people's benefit. Um, So I thought I'll go and consult with some of my close uh, client friends who had reached out to me and said, can you give us a bit of your time? So there were four of those. um, And they kept me busy 40-plus hours a week. And then one by one, um, they became successful um, and they themselves were bought out or had merged uh, to the point now where my consulting work is limited by choice to one organisation now, which um, I'm in the middle, well, after 19 years of supporting them, um, and uh, probably another one or so left... Before other opportunities come up for them, and when that happens, Stephanie, it'll probably probably be my, be my uh, grand finale in terms of um, uh, working.
0: Amazing! And what what are the main kind of um, thanks for that amazing overview? And I can see how. encouragement of your parents has you know you've obviously really taken that on because you are so encouraging of others and you know i think that's awesome the way you said that they encourage you to kind of aim high because you i see that in you i see you encouraging others all the time to aim high and you know sometimes you kind of share a dream or an idea with someone and they can kind of say oh come on you know be really realistic but you've never done that you always really believe in people's dreams and think that the sky is the limit so um, it's beautiful hearing you say that and seeing that you really uh, live that yourself uh, what are some of the lessons that you've learned in like the career that you've just shared because you've worked in very large kind of firms and then you've kind of got out gone out on your own and created your own model what are the, some of the lessons that you've learned there
1: well, I think the first one was get over your fear of failure quickly. Um, the unknown is always something that builds a little bit of fear around, can I do this? Am I good enough to do this? That probably plagued me, as long with most people, in the early part of my career. But it was really other people's confidence in me that dragged me out of that. And I thought, well, they wouldn't be giving me this to do if they didn't think I could do it. So I, um, along the way, and as I became more and more experienced, uh, I became less fearful of the unknown. So when opportunities came up, um, I thought, well, if I do my best, I, I reckon I can do this. Um, so I think that was one of the lessons that I learned. Another one was uh, surround yourself with people better than you. Um, and I actually, um, uh, tried to be one of those on my way up the ladder. So whether it was a menial task in my first year of work, I wanted to do it really well so that people thought, well, this is someone that, uh, doesn't matter, uh, how many of the task is, they take it responsibly. And as the, um opportunities grew and the complexity of those things grew Um, to start with you'd be a novice at it and you might make some mistakes once again don't be concerned about making a mistake making it over and over well that's a problem but a mistake is as much as as much a learning mechanism as getting it right and that was um, something I learned fairly early on as well so I became someone that was tolerant of mistakes because I made them um, and I learned from them. So when others made them, uh, you'd pick them up and say, hey, that's okay. Um, now, what did you learn from that? How do you think that came about? And when it was clear that they understood the source of whatever the mistake was, I knew that they'd learned something and they would never make it again. So there were a couple of things Stephanie, that I thought uh, were learnings along the way.
0: Amazing. I love just the um, belief in yourself that you had or that, you, you know, you used your thoughts to kind of encourage yourself and think, you know, have, have a positive outlook rather than limit yourself and, and then that others saw that in you and that you had other people around you that drew the best out in you. And I think... Well, absolutely um, essential for people and ideally we would always see the potential in ourselves but it helps so much to have people around us that encourage us and provide you know opportunities for us to step up as well so um, amazing so Neville um, I forget actually how we met initially but I just wanted to share the the facts that when I'm talking about you encouraging others it's to the point where you really get behind them and we um, as part of Seven Women, the charity, you, you've always been a fantastic encourager of that and of me. But we um, won, and I think you were involved. You, you were involved in nominating me for this, probably the most incredible award um, that we've ever received, which was of, of responsible business, and that was through Rotary International at the United Nations. And it was such a special. Uh, and so exciting to be able to receive that award because it included a trip over to America with my mum who I got, you know, to bring someone along and that was... so special for me to be able to invite my mum because she's always wanted to go to New York and she's always been, a fan, always been by my side and a fantastic supporter of seven women. And uh, you came too as a support for, I think it was one and a half days or something like that to New York. And I'll never ever forget that because it was just the feeling of that support, you hopping on a plane all that way from Australia over to New York for that short amount of time was so special and I remember we sat there you know having you and mum when I was sharing the seven women's story at the UN um, was a great feeling and being able to sit with you the day after and work through all the business cards that you know I'd been given and and you know just have your support in how to reach out to them and all that sort of thing was incredible so um You know, thank you for that. You know, I've said thank you before, but that that level of support will always stick with me, and I really appreciate that.
1: It was my pleasure, Stephanie. And look, a little bit of background to that was that I did meet you at a Rotary conference in Albury. Uh, You were showcasing the Seven Women story at um, the showcase uh, at the conference breakouts, and I saw it from a distance. So I didn't get to know you then, but that's when I first I heard about seven women and you. Um, but then hearing how much you, that I thought you had given up to do what you were doing was really something that took me, uh, captured my mind and I thought, wow, I would like to actually get to know that person and understand what has driven a 22-year-old to um, to do this amazing Stuff and put their life or make that their life. I won't say put it on hold, but um, make that their, their focus. And uh, when I became governor, what I didn't know was that this um, United Nations and Rotary partnership would bring together a United Nations, uh, Rotary the United Nations Day each year, and that the world president would develop some criteria. And in that year, it was responsible business. And I had two weeks to find someone and finding that someone was easy because you and Seven Women's Story stood out as an amazing uh, responsible business story. You weren't here, though. You were up in um, far northern Australia. So trying to capture the information we needed was problematic and, at uh, long story short, was that. We put our best foot forward, nominated you, two months went past. I was doing 65 club visits who were on the road to doing that. And it went out of my mind. And then we got an email one morning very early to say, Stephanie's been one of six people recognised. Well, it took me probably half a minute to understand what I was reading. It was early in the morning, but, um, and then I, then it said I wasn't allowed to tell anyone um, except you and others. But that trip to New York where you got the opportunity to tell the Rotary world about Seven Women and the fact that you had captured many Rotary clubs and Rotarians' hearts with that, what you had been doing, that the collaboration between Rotary and Seven Women has just continued to grow. So it became very, very uh, easy for me to, to support Stephanie Woolard and through that seven women. And, yes, Grand Central Railway Station over a sandwich, picking through the business cards, who it was, who they were, how you were going to connect with them, uh, what the pitch would be. It was probably the best two hours I've ever spent, the best f- fun I've ever had. Um, so, yeah, great memories.
0: It was unreal. And can we please tell the tie story? Because <laughs> it's hilarious.
1: Well, it's the first time ever in my travelling career that my luggage uh, got lost. And I did have uh, certain things with me, but one of them wasn't a tie. And Stephanie, uh, always very um, industrious, said to me, leave it with me, I'll, get, I'll find a tie." And uh, so it was a very colorful tie and uh, it didn't really match my shirt, but nevertheless, it wasn't a fashion contest. Put the tie on, went into the United Nations building, we're sitting there. And during the course of the presentations, um, I was feeling that someone was looking at me. And two people away, um, there was a gentleman from Coca Cola in Pakistan who had also been. Coca-Cola had been identified as a corporate responsible organisation and uh, it was him that was glancing over every now and then. And It wasn't until later when it was all breaking up and Stephanie said, I'd like you to meet his person and then she whispered to me later It said it was was his tie that I got from him. So he was actually looking at the guy wearing his tie and wondered um, what had happened to it. Well, Stephanie, I don't know what you told him, but um, he was very interested to think that either, either had a tie just the same as his or it was his tie.
0: <laughs> so funny, so funny. And I loved the sense of adventure. You know, your suitcase had been left behind, but you were willing to wear, you know, a random tie and just, you know, we, we all had great fun. <laughs> so, well. uh, yeah.
1: I had to be very adaptable that trip. Uh, I was washing washing things in in the shower at 2am in the morning and putting it (laughs) on the air conditioner so it would dry off.
0: (laughs) So Uh,
1: good. And then, of course, by the time I got home to Melbourne, a day and a half later, um, I got back before my suitcase arrived at my doorstep two hours before that. Um, So I never saw the case. Um, after we landed at Los Angeles um, until I got home. (laughs) That's an interesting side story, one that I won't forget.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So for those people you mentioned Rotary, for those people that are not familiar with Rotary, you mentioned being a district governor and visiting 65 clubs in the district. So uh, as a district governor, uh, that's part of your role. Can you just explain a bit about Rotary and Yeah,
1: what was your role as district governor at that time? Sure. Uh, The Rotary structure is at three levels, the international level where we have a world president and um, then clubs all over the world in over 200 countries. And here in Victoria, we have uh, five districts and I was selected to be the governor of one of those districts. Um, And the geography of that is impossible to explain, other than to say, if you've ever seen a pro-heart painting where the paint splatters all over the canvas, um, that's pretty much how our clubs are located in our district. But we go up to Bendigo and Achuca, right down the Cold Freeway into the Western Suburbs, CBD of Melbourne, and there's there's about 2,400 Rotarians in that district. And um, the role of district governor is to... Uh, set the strategic agenda for those clubs to uh, identify with. Of course, each one of them are autonomous. They have their own incorporated entity. So they make their own choices as to what they do in their communities uh, locally and internationally. Um, But nevertheless, uh, one of the unique parts of the Rotary's international structure is that we connect uh, our networks through a, a common strategy and a common theme of service above self. So it was, a, it was actually three years, president, uh, Governor nominee, Governor-elect and in the Governor year, working on the, th- the same three-year strategy with my two predecessors. So it was one of the most um, um, inspiring three years that I've ever spent watching and listening about what, people were doing in the community, in their local Rotary Clubs, that I never knew about. And, um, of course, I bumped into you along the way many times, Stephanie, because uh, a lot of those clubs embraced the seven women's story and asked you to come and talk to them about it. And many of them jumped on board to support. So, yes, it's one of the, the, I won't call it a hobby because it was a bit more than that, but it's still something that I feel strongly about, um, because you can do um, amazing things with just a little amount of time. Uh, it doesn't need a lot of time in Rotary to to make a difference. A phone call, a phone call can make a huge difference. So that was a little bit about Rotary.
0: Amazing, and I'd love to just ask you a bit more about your role as district governor, because that's a, a um, huge leadership position and there's so many people involved in Rotary and lots of clubs wanting different things and it really requires someone who is, um, you know, fantastic at navigating different people with different agendas and different projects and so I'd love to just, um, you know, ask you a few more questions about that. But I just remembered that I think it was actually your conference, your district conference that brought all the clubs together in the district that I spoke about Seven Women and launched my book, um, which was a a roaring success. I couldn't believe how much support I had for the book uh, on that stall, and I think we sold... um, I forget exactly how many we sold, but I just remember thinking, oh, my God, that was an incredible support that I had from, from the district in, in the book sales, you know. It was like flat out on the stall. So thank you for that platform as well. You know, you, you create so many platforms for people to, uh, to step up and, you know, really um, drawing out their potential. So and I've seen that and, and I tell the UN story because, I mean, that shows your willingness know how far you'll go to support somebody, even even when you didn't have your tie and you didn't have your suitcase, it didn't seem to bother you. I was like, I I had this next level appreciation and respect for you because I was like, he's not even bothered. Like he's up early hours of the morning washing his things and you just kind of took it in your stride and I just thought, what a legend.
1: Well, there is um, a lesson in that and I was taught very early on in my life and my career that you can't worry about what you can't control or change. And this was one of those situations when I realised my bag wasn't coming with me, that my mind started to turn to, well, what, how am I going to get through this? United Nations Day was coat and tie, then we we're going out to dinner afterwards. Um, the, the airline didn't offer me anything. It was actually the hotel that provided me with uh, toiletries and so on. But um, I, I knew that uh, probably from the days where our mother taught us to be self-sufficient and wash and iron and all those things for ourselves, that, um, that I just needed to focus on giving you the best experience I could because I knew that uh, when the presentations were over, that's when my job started, and that is to introduce you to as many influential people in that organisation as I possibly could. And as you say, we had a whole bunch of business cards to sift through the next day. So there's no point me throwing a tantrum or, or any such kind because that wasn't going to change the outcome of the fact that there were certain things that I had planned to have with me that I didn't. So I think that's a, a lesson in life, in whether it's at work or, or personal.
0: I love that. And I almost I almost love the challenge of when things go pear-shaped because it's like, you know, life comes in and provides things like the tie and it's like game on, you know, it gives you an opportunity to think, all right, how are we going to work this out? So, you know, someone, I throw myself in those situations all the time and, and I love it because you never know what's going to kind of, come to fruition and it always life always does step in and support
1: well i think like, it's suffice to add that a lot of people are thinking well why didn't you just go down to the shop and buy uh, whatever you needed well the united nations day was at on a saturday commencing at 9am and all the shops didn't open until 10am so that option was taken off the table so it was improvise 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 uh, but yes it is it does it does test your character um how calm you can keep when things don't go according to plan Um, yeah
0: and and one of the things that I admire about you also Neville is like you've got an incredible way of um you know strategizing and and connecting people and making things happen and I would actually like to be more like that myself and I've learned a lot from just watching you but I'd love you to share a few you know how does give us a bit of an insight into the details of in an organization like Rotary or even in your previous workplace if you want to get something to happen what what, how do you kind of go about it to get all the different personalities and all the different agendas on board obviously uniting people in a vision but because I've seen you get incredible things off the ground and I'd love to just share with those listening you know how one goes about that.
1: I think um, the number one thing is to have a very clear understanding of what the objective is but not get so um, fixated on how it's to be done because there can be any number of ways to do things and that's usually where the disagreements come, and that is, oh, no, you can't do this and you can't do that. In a work environment, uh, you're working with, in many cases, your peers. In my case, it was my partners, my business partners, and senior managers and then the rest of your team members uh, who who are impacted by whatever uh, decisions are made. So we would call about what's in this for me why should I change why should I do what you're saying and so I always felt it was very important to explain what you were trying to achieve and why you were trying to achieve it and then give some examples of how that change could benefit every layer in your organization now that was probably a little easier not not easy but a little easier than in a commercial organisation than it is in a volunteer organisation because in a commercial organisation, people have a job and they get paid and some will just do what they're uh, told to do. I never liked working like that. I really did want people to believe in what was being um, uh, achieved. In a volunteer organisation, you don't pay anybody and they are equally passionate about what they believe in. So we're all brothers and sisters in arms when it comes to what we believe. And so whenever an issue came up where people were disagreeing on how to do things, I would say, look, let's agree on the fact that we are all trying to achieve the same outcome, and that is to help people that are less fortunate. Yes, we agree on that. Okay, then it's just a matter of how let's put down all the options we have for how we might go about that. And let's not think any one of them a bad idea, but we will go through a process where we identify one that we're going to give a a go. And if that doesn't work um, by virtue of not achieving uh, benchmarks along the way, then we may change course and try another one of the options. And it's really saying to people, your idea is not rubbish. It's a valid idea, but we've got to pick one to go with. We can't have more than one at a time. So let's find a way of um, unemotionally determining how we go about that. And there are many ways that I've been taught to do that uh, where people aren't offended.
0: Can you share some of those ways? because? This is where it gets very interesting. I, I love I love these questions.
1: Well, if you can imagine a graph with an X and Y axis, X is vertical and Y is horizontal. And the X axis, uh, so there are two elements. One is uh, how quickly can we do something? And the other axis is what, how much impact will this have if we achieve it? And so you score impact and speed out of 10 for each thing that you suggest that we might do. So if you say, well, we want to do A, B, C, D and have 25 things, then you go and score by virtue of hands up, I have, I, 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 we'll write it down, how many do you score, how many do you score, and then we strike an average. So, for example, um, we, one project might be really easy to do, um, so it's 8 out of 10 for uh, how quickly we could get it done because how quickly you get things done shows people that you're action-oriented and you don't just sit and talk about things and and nothing gets done. And on the other side, let's say the impact was, okay, so it's, it's about a 3 out of 10. It's not a huge impact, but we can do it quickly. So 8 plus 3 is 11. So that's... Park that to one side, then you take the next project and it scores six out of 10 for speed because it's actually uh, taking a little bit more complexity, but the impact is huge. It could be eight. So eight plus six is 14. As you work your way through this arithmetically, all you end up with, with is a list where you go from the highest score to the lowest saying it doesn't mean one is better than the other, but that's how we believe that if we were going to start one thing at a time I'll pick five out of 25, this would be the top five. And then you talk to people and say, how do you feel about that? If we went with this top five, can you live with that? And generally speaking, I don't think I've been in a, a breakout session once where the top 5 have hasn't been something that the, the group was prepared to back. And that's how you move forward. And then you talk to them about after that five, then you take the next five and the next five until you've done all of the ones on the list potentially. So you don't get um, paralysis by analysis. You actually find a way where people's egos aren't being bruised.
0: That's a very organised way to go about it. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear that technique, strategy.
1: Well, another one is the force field analysis where you um, identify all of the positive things that can come out of what you're doing and all the negative things. And then the groups goes through all the positives and, and then comes up with ideas on how they can add value, more value to those positives. What could we do that would, so each one of them, what could we do that would add more uh, positivity to that? And then when we finish with that, we do the negatives and say, what can we do that would halve or reduce the negativity or the issues around each one of these? So effectively what you've done with all the lists, with all the positives in the list, you've actually enhanced that positivity and with the negatives, you've you've diminished them. So um, it becomes clearer then as to what the action plan going forward uh, would be. So you're forcing people to think more positively uh, about both the strengths and the weaknesses.
0: Awesome. I've got two more quite specific questions. One is um, how do you decipher who to involve at what point in that process? Because, you know, the more people you involve, the um, the more risk of people getting disappointed if their ideas aren't taken up. And the other question that relates to that is, when you were district governor, you obviously had a lot of different ideas coming to you and clubs wanting to do different things and people wanting different things from you. How did you manage to kind of say no if it wasn't with what you were doing, you know, in alignment with what you were doing and keep them on board as, you know, as people that respected you and, and followed you and felt okay with that?
1: Yeah, good question. Well, with the second question first, um, you sort of get uh, uh, the feeling that, okay, is this something they're wanting to put on my shoulders? Um, Because once again, I learned very quickly, you never allow someone to come into your office or to talk to you and leave the monkey on your shoulder. So you say, okay, I understand what you're saying, but what would you do about that? Uh, What have you um, come up with in terms of, how you might deal with that, or what you would want me to do. So I would, in the Rotary sense, indicate to them that as district governor, I don't influence what they do in their club. That is up to their board and their members. So if it's something that they're trying to push up to me, I'll say, look, I don't have a mandate. Uh, for Basically what I'm doing, Steph, is letting them understand the way in which the structure operates and that perhaps the person they should be best talking to to take their idea forward is this person or that person. In that way I became a, a directory. I didn't want to say, no, I can't do that or no, I won't do that. I would help them identify the best person that could help um, manage um, to achieve that. What was the one in the work, what was the first one in the work environment?
0: Uh, the, it was how do you know who to involve at what stage of the process because you want to bring everyone along for the journey but it's kind of impossible sometimes.
1: So it depends on who um, is going to be impacted by it. So if it's the whole organization is going to potentially be impacted by uh, this, then you would take a selection of people from every segment of the organization. Uh, in terms of seniority and management. So if that was um, some people from the administration area, others from other professional areas um, in terms of management, senior management, junior management, um, uh, someone that is uh, reporting to others, you take a segment from every one of those areas so that they're having an impact and effectively speaking on behalf of their cohort. So they have an input into it. And then we we would have them with support from partners or senior management to work with their cohort on explaining what happened in that workshop. So they... they and then would get more ideas to come and feed back to whoever was leading that project. So basically what you're doing is trying to avoid people saying, well, you're telling me what to do, but you've not asked me what I think. So if you've given them the opportunity to input into the outcome, it may not be entirely what they want, but if they see semblance of being listened to and cared about, a bit like the Hawthorne experiment way back uh, when in a sewing shop, a sewing factory, a psychologist turned up the lighting, production went up, it levelled out, actually fell after a while, so they turned the lighting down again and it went up, production went up again. So the conclusion was, it had nothing to do with the lighting, it was everything to do with whether those workers felt someone was thinking about them. And that's the kind of thing that you would work with in terms of understanding who to involve in the decision. It can't be everybody, not in a 200-person organisation, and it shouldn't be everybody, but it should be representative of all of the people, of all of the areas that are impacted by the outcome.
0: Uh, Amazing. So one of the the things that I have noticed about you and your leadership way has been you're very reliable so I feel like when you say you're going to do something it'll be done and that is gold and I'm wondering some of the leaders that you've kind of admired over your journey what what character traits have they had that you've really uh admired and, and also you know you're very inclusive as well and that's that's something I admire greatly uh, what about you
1: oh modesty um uh, the best leaders I've seen are people who don't grandstand and beat their chest about what they've done. They're very secure in themselves, effectively. They know what they've done. They don't need uh, to go on about that um, good listening. Uh, I, I prefer to listen than speak, particularly initially. And uh, it's been said to of me, to me, about my roles on boards that initially they thought that, I wasn't gonna say much, but what I did have to say was impacting. And all it meant was I was listening to what the others were saying. And particularly if it was management coming to talk to the board members about what's going on out there, um, I wanted to listen to that very carefully. So I, I'm not one that's uh, um, inavid with hearing my own voice. I like to listen. And whilst I'm listening, I will be uh, analysing in my mind what I what can I do to help? What can I do uh, to have an input into this? And if I've got nothing, then don't why why say anything? Nor do I wait to be asked. I mean, I, I have no problem uh, putting up ideas when when I've got the opportunity. But um, most people who know me will think that my comments are. A fairly well considered and reflective of um, of a conversation that's being had rather than just speaking for the sake of it.
0: Yeah. Um, can you give us an example just to, to really understand kind of a, of a collaboration that you've done that you've taken an idea into a full-blown happening? Because I think that's a really interesting journey from one idea to you know adopting the support and Because so many things come in the way of the idea to it actually, you know, coming to fruition.
1: Well, I'll pick one of seven women where, with very short notice, uh, the the person that I'm talking to now indicated that they were looking to raise some funds to to, uh, refurbish um, a hotel in Nepal. And when I heard how much that... Uh, you were hoping to raise, and there were only six weeks to, to that point, to that time, um, uh, that little uh, dark voice in my mind said, that, is this possible? And I thought, I'm not going to tell her it isn't. Um, just yeah, that.
0: I've just been telling everyone how encouraging you are.
1: <laughs> no, I, I said to myself, I'm not going to tell her it isn't achievable because maybe it is. Yeah. And, of course, what popped out of that meeting was the way we went about that, the way things were auctioned. Uh, 20 minutes into that auction, everything had been sold. And that was where you got nothing in return other than the great feeling that you were doing something wonderful to help the people that uh, you were looking to help. So it was really not not being the black hat in the room um, and saying, yeah, let's continue to talk positively about this until something pops up that we can all say, yes, let's go. So that was one of them. Uh, looking it, at what... Go uh, on. Just
0: on that before you move on, um, that was, you know, the power of belief, I think. I just want to touch on that because I think if you are so certain that something's going to happen, it absolutely happens, you know, believe without a doubt and it will come about. And as soon as, you know, as soon as that idea came of, you know, we had the guest house, which was basically a shell a house in Kathmandu, Nepal, and we needed about $75,000 to renovate it. And it was, why don't we have an auction to auction off each of the rooms and the electricity and the garden and the plumbing. and the... So um, I... I had absolutely no doubt that in yeah it was six weeks or even less than six weeks. I, I pulled a few people together to have a meeting um, and to share the vision. And I knew um, I knew some people would kind of go not possible because people plan way in advance. But I I knew that that was going to happen because for me I you know the people popped into my mind the MC um, you know the potential a few auctioneers potential auctioneers. And I I knew the people that we had as Seven Women Supporters that would come and support, which, you know, you were one of them and absolutely um, value so much, people that kind of thought, yeah, yeah, I'll come and I'll bring a friend, you know, he will be able to contribute or I'll book a table um, for the event. So... um, It was, yeah, I just wanted to touch on the fact that the belief, you know, the belief in something going to happen and and then it comes about. So that's absolutely critical to have absolutely no doubt that it will happen and then it does.
1: Yes, and in a business sense, uh, in my first six months as managing partner, um, I could see that the structure was holding back the organisation. We had 16 partners at that time and we had monthly meetings and um, uh, every decision that affected the firm, right down to uh, what biscuits we kept in the kitchen, um, what the photocopying policy would be for staff. And I thought, this is crazy. Um, This is um, over management. So I put to them the creation of an executive structure where the managing partner would be the chair and then two other partners Selected by the others would be uh, become executive um, on that committee, and then we would have our um, our uh, finance manager for the organisation um, be part of that. And um, so, I knew that my peers would be rather. Uh, uh, cautious about this and say what are the, what's he going to try and do that I'm not going to find out about until it's happened and so I was very clear in in how it would look and so we had a breakaway uh, up at um, RACV Club in Hillsville for two days and we talked around it and it got, it got through it was remarkably um, it seemed remarkably easy everyone thought, once they understood they weren't going to be locked out of decision the, the, the real decisions, they would allow the everyday running of our business to be handed over to a smaller group. And if we got it wrong, then when our term came, they would replace us. So that was another um, that was another example, Steph.
0: Awesome. And just to I'd love to kind of end on. Um, a, wh- when has it gone pear-shaped and how have you dealt with that? When, is it, when have the politics kind of been so out of control that you had to s- sort things out and really kind of take a stand? And, that, it, it, you know, another thing that I've um, been privy to is you kind of you're fantastic at that and you don't take sides. you just you're very wise in that situation. So I'm really wanting to hear an example and um, how you've navigated through that.
1: I must say, um, before I answer it, it, it that takes a big, a big emotional toll to do that right. Um, you can't do that like a machine and feel nothing. Um, you feel the pain um, of the decision. Uh, one of the examples was a peer of mine who was involved in my employment way back out of university. And after many, many years, I found myself as the managing partner and uh, it became apparent that um, he no longer enjoyed working in our firm, yet he was a partner in that firm. And when we'd done a survey for a, um, a strategic workshop that we were having with our management over a weekend, uh, one of the questions was, would you recommend the organisation as a place to work? And only one person answered no. And that was him. And I had the chairman of the practice come to me uh, very upset say, this can't be allowed to be. Um, we need to find out what's driving this person's feelings. So I had, the, op- I had the, the task of finding out and there was a whole bunch. I won't go into all those things, but ultimately um, that person accepted that what he would do is go and speak to every partner and get help him understand how they were uh thinking about the issues he was upset about and then he declined to do that and so once again the chairman of the practice came into my office shut the door and i thought oh this doesn't happen very often and he was um quite upset that it didn't happen and uh he asked me to to have a meeting with that partner myself as managing partner and the chair and we did and so the chair explained his concern about this Um, how can you not want to talk to your partners about something that is pushing you to the point where you would not recommend the organization to work for and after saying all that he had to say the chairman said if you if you really don't want to do anything um, about it then maybe you should leave and that person looked at me said neville what do you think and i think i nearly died what do i think i've been thinking golly this is not going how i thought it was meant to go and i I thought, well, I need to speak from my uh, from my heart, and I said, look, it it really upsets me to see you this unhappy in an organisation that you've been a part of for so long, and I sense that if it's come to that, and you don't want to talk to your partners, perhaps what the chairman has said is is right, and he just nodded his head and said, okay, and with that, he resigned. That wasn't easy, Steph, Um, and nor should it have been. And, uh, you know, and and anyone where you have to let them know that their career is not going to go forward and it might be better off somewhere else, and I've had three or more of those over time where they actually made something big of themselves having left that organi- our organisation. I don't know what they thought of me about that, but I was so proud of them that they took that in a positive way and made it work for them. So there's a few examples of, um, of what you've just asked.
0: Examples, and especially the last one with um, just, you know, that human-centred... Um, approach where you're thinking of the human and and speaking your truth and I think you know most people would sense the intention of where that's coming from and appreciate the honesty um, but just just always kind of coming back to speaking your truth especially in a situation like that uh, thank you so much for your wise words and your sharing on this podcast. It's um, super interesting and I'm sure everyone listening has been inspired by some of your life experiences. Um, really appreciate it, Neville, and just wanted to end on one thing, just hearing you sharing those examples. Um, it's You've got an incredible kind of wise way of looking at things and understanding and acceptance of humans and their you know personalities and kind of looking beyond that and just yeah always kind of looking to how can we how can we resolve that and how can we draw the best out in people so and I'm not just saying that to be nice on this podcast I I truly you know believe everything that I'm saying about you and very grateful to have you in my life and have you as a supporter and encourager so thank you.
1: Oh, Thank you Steph for this opportunity and for being who you are I look forward to working more with you as time goes on. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to our Inspiring Humans podcast, and I hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any inspiring human in mind that you would like to nominate, please reach out and let us know. Also, you're very welcome to become part of our Facebook group called Inspiring Humans, where you can connect with incredible people from around the globe. Uh, Thirdly, if you are interested in being part of a global network, we have an incredible community at sevencontinentscouncil.com where we hold events, programs and many different initiatives that you can be involved in. Thank you and see you again soon.